Testing one, two, three, testing one, two, three, testing one, two, three. Hi everyone, my name is Mike DeBliss. Um, I'm presenting the second half of the Evidence 101 program for Esquire CLE. It's um, a pleasure once again to be presenting with uh, such a fine CLE company. I'm going to pick up where I left off at the end of the first half of, of Evidence 101. And uh, that's with character evidence in criminal cases. I do want to backtrack slightly to talk about some of the key factors affecting character evidence rules and their application. Uh, the way I view character evidence is through the prism of four preliminary questions. The first is to determine the purpose for which the evidence is being offered. The second is the method of proving character. Third is the type of case, whether we have a civil case or a criminal case. And four is what trait of character is involved. I found that following this, these four questions um, helps me to not to overlook anything for starters, but second, um, also um, to have a framework for viewing an evidence problem. So uh, when it comes to what purpose um, the character evidence is being offered, um, there are a couple of things you want to keep in mind. Uh, first, when character is directly an issue, what I'm talking about here is when a person's character is a material element in the case. The second is when character um, is, is being introduced as circumstantial evidence of a person's conduct at the time of a litigated event. In other words, um, the character evidence rule, character evidence to prove conduct in conformity with character on an occasion and issue. And the third is uh, character to impeach the credibility of a witness. Um, in other words, bad character for truthfulness to impeach the credibility of a witness who testifies at trial. The second um, question that I look at is what method or technique is being used to prove character? There are a few possibilities here. The first is specific acts of conduct. The second is opinion, uh, personal opinion. Third is the reputation in the community. And fourth is reputation or opinion um, is a red flag that tells you you're in the realm of character evidence. Third, what type of case, civil or criminal? And fourth, what trait of character? Um, it must be the specific trait which is substantively an issue in the case. So, a good place to begin here, and let me just say this, uh, when it comes to character evidence, I found that hypotheticals are extremely helpful for driving home these concepts. Otherwise, we understand the theory and we understand the rule, but not so much its application to a real set of facts. So one of the things that I've done here, and you'll see, um, is running through um, most of this presentation is uh, hypotheticals that help to demonstrate the practical application of these rules um, in a real courtroom setting where a case is being litigated, and in this case, a criminal case. 
So here are the basic rules when it comes to character evidence in criminal cases. The first basic rule, bad character, whether in the form of specific acts or prior misconduct, prior crimes or convictions, bad opinion or bad reputation is not admissible by the prosecutor if the sole purpose is to show criminal disposition in order to infer guilt from disposition. So I realize that that is a mouthful and we're going to dissect it. Um, now, as with any rule or most rules rather in the realm of evidence, there are exceptions. Um, so this rule about bad character being um, inadmissible by the state if the sole purpose is to show criminal disposition in order to infer guilt from disposition does have a myriad of exceptions. Um, so this leads us to basic rule number two. Unless the defendant opens the door. So the defendant is permitted to offer evidence of good character for the pertinent trait in the form of reputation and opinion to show disposition in order to infer innocence. So here's the situation. We have a defendant who opens up the door and um, in doing so uh, introduces evidence such as um, in a crime of violence where the defendant is charged with say robbery. The defendant has a character witness take the stand and say that um, David has a peaceful character. Um, that uh, trait of peacefulness <clears throat> uh, blunts the um, very severe connotation of or the very severe character trait of violence in a charge such as robbery or aggravated assault. So that's the situation here. The defendant calls a witness to say that David has a peaceful character. Only then may the prosecutor respond by showing the bad character of the accused. In other words, the defendant in a criminal case would love to introduce evidence of his good character for the purpose of showing that he is not the type of person that would have committed this crime. But uh, what's good for the goose is good for the gander because whenever the defendant uh, presents evidence of a trait that, um, uh, that negates uh, the bad character, the prosecutor can then turn around and um, respond by showing the bad character of the accused. But the prosecutor cannot do that until the defendant has opened up the door. So in the hypothetical that I just gave where the defendant, David, is on trial for robbery and perhaps aggravated assault or either one, um, the prosecutor cannot um, show the bad character, David's bad character, without David first opening up the door by way of a uh, by way of calling a witness to say that he has the trait of peacefulness, or he is very, um, uh, or he is um, you know nonviolent and um, is a very cuddly person. So here we have an example of when the defense has come perilously close but has not opened up the door. Um, that's kind of how I back my way into this. Um, because, of, because these rules and their practical application are like on the fringe and um, because they're so nuanced and um, to understand them it, it requires uh, parsing 
um, very fine, a very fine line. What I like to do is to actually show um, when one side has come perilously close to, um, in, as in this case, opening up the door, but hasn't. So let's assume now that we have a murder case and the defendant offers testimony by the witness, Wanda. And this is the uh, testimony of Wanda. Quote, I've been David's neighbor, the defendant's neighbor, for 14 years, and he's an honest man. So the question here is, is whether that is a proper way for the defendant to open up the door. Well, at first blush, it might seem as though it is. Um, but what we need to do here is really hone in on what trait um, is being uh, testified to uh, by Wanda. Uh, once again, if we go back to Wanda's testimony, she's saying that she's been David's neighbor for 14 years and he's an honest man. So what we wanna do is focus in on the character trait that Wanda is testifying to about David and that's the trait of honesty. Then what we wanna do is we wanna go back and we wanna look at what type of criminal case we're dealing with. We're dealing with a murder. A murder is a crime of violence. So let's keep those two traits in, our, in the back of our mind, murder and violence, and then honesty um, as the testimony being proffered by Wanda. So is that a proper way for defendant to open up the door? The simple answer is no. It is inadmissible because the trait of being an honest man does not bear on innocence to the charge of murder. It's an improper way to open up the door. Let's compare. What if Wanda is called to the stand to testify that, quote, I've been David's neighbor for 14 years and he's a kind and gentle person. Let's once again isolate the trait that Wanda is testifying to about David, and that's the trait of gentleness and kindness. And then let's look once again at the crime for which David is being charged. He's charged with murder, which is a crime of violence. Here, the gentleness of a person is a trait that would bear on innocence to a charge of murder. Therefore, this evidence would be admissible as a proper way for defendant to open up the door. So my hint here is to focus on the particular trait being offered. That trait has to go to proving innocence for the particular charge. Once again, the trait of gentleness does go to proving innocence for the crime of murder, a violent charge. What type of evidence is the um, state liable to use to rebut? And another question that we might also want to consider here, um, what type of evidence is rebuttal by the prosecution limited to? So the last part of our rule is that the prosecution may so rebut. Rebuttal by the prosecution is limited to reputation and opinion evidence only. So what that all means is that if we go back and we take a look at this hypothetical where the defendant has opened up the door by way of Wanda's testimony, 
where she says, I've been David's neighbor for 14 years and he's a kind and gentle person. Once again, we know that the defendant has opened up the door because he's presented evidence that he's gentle and that bears on innocence to a charge of murder. So how can the prosecution rebut that? Well, the prosecution is limited. The prosecution cannot introduce evidence, for example, uh, where David, even if this is true, has um, assaulted another individual, um, maybe short of being charged um, of that offense. Um, once again, the prosecutor is limited to reputation and opinion evidence only. So let's see how this would bear out. Example one, the prosecutor is offering another neighbor's testimony that she has known the defendant for 14 years and he has a reputation for a violent temper. Once again, this is in, in the wake of the defendant, the defend, defendant um, proffering or putting forth evidence uh, that opens up the door. So here, what the key terms or the key words for the um, witness's testimony is um, that he has a reputation and it is for a violent temper. Reputation evidence for a violent temper is a proper and admissible form of rebuttal by the prosecution. So that would be admissible. Example number two, in a trial where the defendant has been charged with robbery, the defense calls a witness who testifies that he has been defendant's neighbor for 14 years and defendant is an honest man. Okay, so let's take a look at this. We are dealing with a robbery case. Okay, and robbery um, has, uh, has two separate traits that are usually embodied, that are embodied in it, and that is theft and that is violence because very simply, robbery is the theft or taking of um, something from another individual with violence or with the threat of violence. So is the witness's testimony admissible here? The answer is yes. Why? Well, in a robbery case, the trait of honesty goes towards proving innocence. And so the defense, uh, the defense witnesses testimony that he has been uh, the defendant's neighbor for 14 years and defendant is an honest man is admissible. The prosecutor then asks the defense witness on cross-examination, quote, did you know that defendant committed three burglaries in the last year? Well, what do we have here? This is a specific act. Three, committing three burglaries is a specific act. It's not reputation or opinion. Is it a form of, is it a proper form of rebuttal? Yes, it is. This question is being asked not to attack the defendant's character, but it is being asked to challenge the credibility of the witness. So again, this goes into the territory of what purpose is the evidence being introduced for? Once again, it's not being asked to attack the defendant's character, but it is being asked to challenge the credibility of the witness.
So we have to distinguish between character purposes and credibility purposes. We're not asking the witness this question to attack the defendant's character, but it's being asked to challenge the credibility of the witness himself. And it is a beautiful question because you can look at it as a double-edged sword. If the witness doesn't know about the three burglaries, then the prosecution can, uh, can, uh, can ask how well did he or does he actually know the defendant? On the other hand, if he does know about the three burglaries and he's still testifying that the defendant is an honest man, then how credible of a witness is he? So um, it is a double-edged sword and it actually corners um, the defense witness because Either answer is going to inure to the benefit of the prosecutor. Once again, if the witness doesn't know about these three burglaries, then how well could he possibly know the defendant to, test, to have testified that the defendant is an honest man? On the other hand, if he does know about the three burglaries and he still testified um, that the defendant was an honest man, then his credibility has just sunk um, quicker than a than uh, than the Titanic, and so what you want to do if you are the defense attorney in a situation like this is anticipate, 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 and to the extent that after doing a thorough interview with your client, you determine that there are let's say some skeletons in his closet, especially in a situation like this uh, where. Um, there are instances of um, specific acts of prior conduct, um, here three burglaries, you want to anticipate that question coming on the heels of your defense witness testifying that um, your client has a trait of honesty. And so you might forbear or withhold that witness from testifying um, to as a character witness altogether for fear that on rebuttal the prosecutor would ask just that question because it doesn't really help. You don't come out looking good as the attorney for the defendant, nor does your client, of course, when the prosecutor calls a rebuttal evidence, a rebuttal witness to testify to, um, to, the, to the credibility of your character witness and absolutely destroys him or her. Now we have a new hypothetical. We are in the territory of Tony Soprano, uh, one of my favorite um, shows of all time. Um, Tony Soprano is arrested and is on trial for assaulting an elderly woman. In court, he looks like a clean, upstanding, middle-aged man. The prosecutor, however, has his rap sheet. And what does that rap sheet show? It shows six prior arrests. There are arrests for robbery, three prior convictions for assault, and two prior convictions for perjury. So once again, he has six prior arrests, one for robbery, an arrest for robbery, three prior convictions for assault, and two prior convictions for perjury. Once again, let me, ref let me um, state, restate what he is on trial for. 
He's not on trial for money laundering. Um, he's not on trial for a tax fraud, but he's on trial for assaulting an elderly woman. That's key here. Question one, as part of its case in chief, can the prosecutor introduce Tony's criminal history? The simple answer to that question is no. Question two, may the prosecutor introduce Tony's criminal history or any part of it if Tony does not try to show his good character, but only takes a stand and denies his involvement in the crime? Okay, once again, we want to know here if the prosecutor can introduce Tony's criminal history. Why? Well, it's obvious. That will dirty and taint um, his reputation immeasurably before the jury. So a prosecutor is literally salivating to get that prior criminal history introduced as evidence at trial. And so our question here is, can the prosecutor introduce that history or any part of it if Tony does not try to show his good character, but he nonetheless takes a stand and denies his involvement in the crime? Can the prosecutor use, uh, introduce Tony's criminal history to show Tony's disposition to be violent? No, of course not. That violates the tenet of the character evidence rule. How about to impeach Tony's credibility, to show lack of truthfulness? The answer to that is yes. The part of Tony's criminal background that deals with truthfulness would be admissible. Now what we need to, to, to impeach is credibility as a witness. However, we have to be very careful here. As I just said, the part of Tony's criminal background that deals with truthfulness would be admissible because it is being introduced to impeach Tony's credibility as a witness. So what part of Tony's criminal history deals with truthfulness? Let's go back again. His six prior arrests are for robbery, three prior convictions for assault, and two prior convictions for perjury. Well, robbery is a crime of violence. That doesn't bear on truthfulness for, um, for, uh, for when it comes to testifying. How about his convictions for assault? Those are crimes of violence. And similarly, robbery has crimes is um, uh, robbery also encapsulates violence. So what part of his prior criminal history would be admissible? How about the prior convictions for perjury? Why? Well, the convictions for perjury deals with testifying um, under oath dishonestly and uh, falsely. And so that would bear on um, impeachment of of his uh, that would bear on impeachment of uh, for his credibility when he testifies and takes the stand, and so that part of Tony's criminal background that deals with truthfulness, namely perjury, would be admissible, but not the other um, offenses, namely the robbery or the convictions for assault. Third question, can Tony take the initiative to show his good character? Of course he can do so. 
Question four, for what trait can Tony show his good character? Well, if Tony wants to show his good character, then he has to introduce evidence of his reputation for peacefulness. Why? Because the crime for which he has been charged is violent. He's charged with assault. So a very, very important thing to keep in mind when we're dealing with the federal rules of evidence is that the character is that the trait that is being introduced um, in evidence has to bear on innocence for the crime that's being charged. Once again, since we're dealing with the charge of assault, uh, which is a violent offense, um, Tony would be able to introduce evidence of his reputation for peacefulness because that goes to innocence for a crime of assault. Question five, what method or technique is available for Tony to demonstrate his good character? What about specific acts of good conduct? How about opinion? How about reputation? Tony, of course, wants to present himself as a peaceful person to show that he acted consistent with this trait on the um, occasion in issue. Only evidence in the form of reputation or opinion is admissible. Specific acts of good conduct are inadmissible when the defendant is offering circumstantial evidence of his good character. So what that means, and here's a quick and dirty example, is that Tony would not be able to introduce evidence that um, on such and such a day in question, he helped an old lady to cross the street um, or um, he helped an old lady who um, fell um, to get back up and uh, helped uh, clean her wounds out. Uh, those are specific acts of good conduct and they're inadmissible when a defendant is offering circumstantial evidence of good character. Question six, assume that Tony calls Paulie. So uh, Tony's, Tony's good friend Paulie is going to come as a witness and he testifies that Tony has a good reputation for peacefulness and that in Paulie's opinion, Tony is peaceful. So um, to, uh, to simplify this, uh, Tony's or Paulie's testimony is, quote, I know Tony's reputation for peacefulness in the community and he's a pussycat. Is that admissible? Well, let's take a look at what Paulie is testifying to. He's testifying to reputation and he's testifying to opinion. Once again, he says that he knows Tony's reputation for peacefulness in the community and that Tony is a pussycat. So what we have in play here is the testimony of a defense witness to good reputation of the defendant and opinion testimony that um, in the community, Tony is a pussycat. Is that admissible? It is because of course we're dealing with reputation and opinion. So the next question that we want to ask because as defense attorneys, we're always anticipating, always anticipating, how may the prosecutor respond? So after the accused offers evidence of good character as uh, Tony has through Pauly, the prosecutor can respond by cross-examining 
the accused's good character witness by inquiring about any specific acts which would affect the opinion of the witness. Ding, 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 ding. Remember from earlier, we talked about the specific acts which would affect the opinion of the witness um, in that earlier hypothetical um, where we talked about um, the prosecutor on rebuttal cross-examining the defense witness as to whether he knew that the defendant, David, had three prior arrests for a specific offense. Now, recall that what we're in a very shaky uh, area here, and because we're in an area where we're dealing with specific acts. But again, the question always is, what is the purpose for which the evidence is being offered? Are we uh, introducing this evidence to attack or assassinate the character of the defendant who's on the stand? Or are we doing it to impeach the credibility of the witness? So the prosecutor could attack the credibility of the character evidence himself by introducing evidence of Pauli's prior conviction for perjury or bad reputation for truthfulness. Uh, so if we add a fact here that Pauli himself had a conviction for perjury, could that be introduced to attack his credibility? Absolutely. Absolutely. The The credibility of the defense witness is in play here. And to the extent that Pauli has a prior conviction for perjury, which bears on truthfulness, the defense, the prosecutor rather, could question Pauli about his prior conviction for perjury. Question eight. May the prosecutor ask Pauli on cross-examination, have you heard or do you know that Tony was arrested six times for robbery? Is that admissible? Yes, for the same reason that we talked about this earlier. Now, be mindful of the fact that it's a specific act. And I can't sit here and tell you that as a defense attorney, I wouldn't get up and object to this question. The reason why is because what we're dealing with is parsing a very fine line, all right? As a defense attorney, I'm mindful of the fact that if a jury hears that my client, Tony Soprano, was arrested six times for robbery, that is going to be a major red herring, and that is most definitely going to influence their decision-making when it comes to deliberations. Uh, that is very simply going to taint his reputation and it's, it's going to be impossible to put the rabbit back in the bag, so to speak, after the jury hears something like that. So yes, the simple answer is it's admissible under the rules of evidence, under the federal rules of evidence, but the damage it causes 
my client, Tony, is irreparable. And so as a defense attorney, I'm going to object. Um, however, this is the rule of evidence. It states specifically that this evidence is admissible, even though it's a specific act. The rationale is that this question is being asked not to attack Tony's character, but instead it is being asked to challenge Pauli's credibility. So you need to do some due diligence as a defense attorney and once again anticipate that if Tony, if your client has skeletons in his closet and has prior arrests, as does Tony in this example, you need to anticipate that this question is very likely going to be asked by the prosecutor on rebuttal and that a judge is very likely going to allow it to come in because it is being asked to challenge the credibility of the witness. And once again, it's a beautiful question. Trust me, as a prosecutor, I would be salivating as well um, and delighting in getting this into evidence. So the moment that the defense attorney opens up the door uh, to something like this, I mean, as a prosecutor, um, the, next, the next step uh, could very well mean the difference between whether this case is lost or won because this allows the prosecutor to introduce some of the most damaging evidence that can come to light in a criminal trial. Once again, if Paulie doesn't know that Tony was arrested six times for robbery, then how the heck does he really know Tony's reputation in the community? On the other hand, if Paulie testifies that Tony had a reputation for peacefulness despite knowing that Tony had been arrested six times for robbery, how credible is he really? I mean, come on. Even, you know, just using your basic common sense, you know, um, as jurors use, they will realize that Paulie is a phony and that this is self-serving testimony that is being introduced by the defendant um, merely um, as a way to get him off. Question nine. Suppose that Paulie says, quote, no, I don't believe that Tony was arrested six times for robbery. And this is significant here, so uh, please pay attention. Can the prosecutor call a witness to testify that Tony was in fact arrested six times for robbery? No. The prosecutor is bound by the specific answer of the witness. The reason why is because we can't have a trial inside a trial. Um, in the world of Shakespeare, we can have a play inside of a play, and it can be the most delightful uh, Shakespearean drama you've ever seen before in your life. But we can't have a trial in a trial. Otherwise, we're going to be here forever, and we're going to develop. We're going to delve into minutia that uh, goes well above and beyond the scope of the trial. So the prosecutor is bound by the specific answer of the witness and uh, cannot, um, cannot produce or, uh, or bring forward evidence to prove that Tony was in fact arrested six times for robbery, which could come in the form of the judgment of convictions or could come in the form of uh, the police officer who arrested him, but neither would be admissible because as I said, we are now uh, getting too far away from the scope 
of the trial. Question 10. Can the prosecutor call a witness to testify that Tony had or Tony has a bad reputation for violence and that in the witness's opinion, Tony is a violent person? The answer is yes. After the accused offers evidence of good character, the prosecutor can also respond by calling a prosecution witness to testify to bad opinions or bad reputation in regard to the character of the accused. Once again, we're dealing with a situation where the defense um, has opened up the door by way of introducing a witness that testifies or offers evidence of the defendant's good character. And now the prosecutor is calling a witness to testify that the defendant has a bad reputation for violence and that in the witness's opinion, the defendant, here Tony, is a violent person. The answer very simply is yes. The prosecutor can respond by calling this witness to testify to bad opinions or bad reputation in regard to the character of the accused. Um, now I want to talk a little bit about victim character, um, self-defense. The accused can take the initiative in a homicide or assault case as part of a claim of self-defense to show the character of the victim as circumstantial evidence to infer that on the occasion in question, the alleged victim was the first aggressor. This is only in cases of self-defense. Again, the permissible method of showing character evidence in this situation would be through reputation or opinion evidence. The prosecutor, how could the prosecutor respond? Well, the prosecutor could then respond by showing one, good reputation or opinion concerning the victim, or two, by showing the bad reputation or a bad opinion about the accused himself. Here's a hypo. Here, we're dealing with Tony once again, but in this case, Tony has shot and killed Harry during a barroom brawl. I think that that's more in line with uh, the Tony Soprano that we all know and love. He is charged with murder, but responds with a plea of self-defense. Tony claims that Harry attacked him with a broken beer bottle and that he, Tony, was in fear for his life and had no other choice but to shoot Harry. One of the things that you might be thinking about, and if you're thinking along these lines, you are in the right uh, state of mind. Uh, we look at the weapon or the method of attack um, in a self-defense case that is being used by the defendant, um, and that is a broken beer bottle. Oh, I'm sorry, we're looking at the method of attack that was um, initiated by the alleged victim, which here um, is a broken beer bottle. Then we're looking at the method of force that was subsequently applied or used by the defendant. And here we're dealing with the use of a gun to shoot Harry. So if your mind is thinking, wow, um, it's a little bit disproportionate, uh, you are in a good place for evaluating a self-defense case. Question one, can Tony call a witness to testify 
<clears throat> that Harry had a bad reputation for violence and that in the witness's opinion, Harry was a violent person. Yes, that is admissible. Question two, if Tony does attack Harry's character, can the prosecutor now respond by calling a witness to testify that Harry had a good reputation for peacefulness and that in the opinion of the witness, Harry was a peaceful person? Yes. Question three, if Tony does attack Harry's character, can the prosecutor now call a witness to testify that Tony has a bad reputation for violence and that in the opinion of the witness, Tony is a violent person? The answer is yes. Question four, Tony calls a witness to testify <clears throat> that the witness, Wanda, saw Harry use a broken beer bottle to stab and almost kill three bar patrons in fights Harry started last year. Is that admissible? No. Why? Well, this is evidence of specific acts and only reputation and opinion evidence are permissible methods of showing character. So, you know, it's interesting because you would think that if the defendant is proffering evidence as part of his theory of self-defense that the alleged victim came at him with a broken beer bottle and that the defendant um, can provide evidence that there were three prior occasions where Harry came at other patrons at a bar with a broken beer bottle, you would think that that would be, evid that that would be admissible evidence in uh, the defendant's trial because, you know, at the end of the day, it actually corroborates. It, it, it goes to enhance or to strengthen the defendant's allegation that the um, alleged victim here, Harry, came at him with a broken beer bottle. But once again, this is specific acts of conduct. And when we're dealing with character evidence, only reputation and opinion evidence are permissible methods. So don't be fooled here. Question five, what if Wanda, the witness, testifies that Wanda told Tony about Harry's other acts of brutality a few weeks before Tony shot and killed Harry. So this is interesting because now we're dealing with knowledge. What the defendant Tony knew at the time he was attacked by Harry. Because the witness is providing evidence that is like a new piece to the puzzle here. Something we didn't know before that goes to Tony's state of mind and perhaps might have influenced him to act the way he did on that day in question. So we have the witness testifying that the witness told Tony about Harry's other acts of brutality using a broken beer bottle to attack three other patrons a few weeks before Tony shot and killed Harry. Is it admissible? Yes. So the next question, and I'm sorry to act like a uh, like a geeky evidence professor, but we really need to show why it's relevant. And the good thing is that when we start asking ourselves these questions, we will be so prepared to respond when an objection is made and when the judge 
asks um, for for argument from both sides. It will become second nature to us because we've asked ourselves the question time and time again. And when you're in the heat of battle, as you are when you're in trial, things are happening at lightning speed. And it's really nice to be able to uh, have these things come up at your fingertips without having to overthink them um, so that you can refocus your attention back on your cross-examination because usually this comes like crossfire and it's very easy to throw you when, when these objections are made. Um, it's very easy to throw you off of your script, so to speak. Um, so the more easy it is to answer these objections, the quicker you can get back into your cross-examination without uh, having to spend an untoward amount of time, um, you know, gathering yourself. So what is this evidence relevant to show? It's, it's relevant to show Harry's, is it relevant rather to show Harry's violent disposition in order to suggest that Harry was the aggressor? No. Why? Because specific acts is not a permissible method of demonstrating character. So you're falling into a really dangerous trap if in the wake of this uh, testimony and the subsequent objection, you argue that it's relevant to show Harry's violent disposition in order to suggest that Harry was the aggressor. Don't you dare go down that road because you've lost. Even though this evidence um, is permissible, you are going to sabotage yourself if you answer the objection uh, by saying that his violent disposition um, can uh, be used to suggest or show that Harry was the aggressor. And once again, that's because specific acts is not a permissible method of demonstrating character. How about to show Tony's state of mind? In other words, that he had a reasonable fear of being injured after he was attacked um, by Harry with the beer bottle? The answer is yes. And once again here, back up and recall that Tony is pleading self-defense. Um, in a nutshell, what he's saying is, quote, I was correct in fearing for my life based on what I knew. So your key terms, um, your trigger words are included in that phrase. I was correct, correct, in fearing, in fearing for my life based on what I knew. I knew, another trigger term. What did I know? Do you see how this would be admissible to show Tony's state of mind? It's one thing for Tony to say, I was scared to death when so-and-so uh, came at me, in this case, Harry, with a broken beer bottle. I was scared to death. It's a whole nother thing for Tony to say, I knew from so-and-so, or for a witness to say that I told Tony a few weeks before this incident that Harry came at three other patrons with a broken beer bottle and nearly stabbed them to death with that bottle. You see the difference here? It is such powerful evidence uh, that goes to support Tony's reasonable fear of being injured and makes it a little bit easier for a jury to accept 
Tony's, let's say, disproportionate reaction to the, to the stabbing um, by Harry. In this case, that he took a gun out and he shot Harry. Um, so this is very powerful. You always want to interview witnesses, especially those who can uh, provide some insight into what the defendant's state of mind was at the time of the incident. As I always say during these presentations, and in my own practice as a defense attorney, you can never open up a person's mind to see what they were thinking at the time in question. Um, and of course, the relevance of that is that all criminal offenses require an element of knowledge or mens rea in order to prove. So how do we get inside a defendant's mind when it's impossible to open up their head. Well, we look at their conduct. We look at things that they knew. Um, these are things that are that serve as circumstantial evidence to support, um, you know, various um, things that you're looking to prove. Uh, they can go to help you craft a defense, a theory, a theme for your defense. So you never want to overlook these things. Um, it's a treasure trove of information, and that's why it's always a good practice to interview witnesses, um, most likely uh, as early as you get the case, um, so that you can find out well ahead of time, you know, uh, whether there are evident, whether there are certain witnesses that could be favorable to you, and in turn, uh, that can always increase your bargaining position when it comes to negotiating a case with the prosecutor. How about uh, victim uh, character evidence when we're dealing with sexual misconduct cases? Um, so, you know, I might have misspoken earlier. Uh, when I talk about victim character, I um, said that it was exclusive to self-defense, but that's not true because here we have another form of victim character, and that's sexual misconduct cases. Uh, what I'm specifically talking about are rape cases. I hate to use the word rape as a defense attorney because it just is such a shocking and offensive uh, term, um, you know, and when you're defending these cases, the last thing you want to do is, as a defense attorney, use such strong language. Uh, but, um, you know, in, in, in this situation, um, you know, nonetheless, we are dealing with um, an allegation of rape. And in these cases, uh, reputation and opinion evidence is inadmissible, but specific acts of sexual behavior by the victim are admissible in two instances. What are they? First, behavior with other persons which would explain signs of rape. For example, instances of sexual intercourse with other men than the defendant. If it is used to show that the defendant was not the source of, of semen, found on the victim after the alleged rape. Second, past behavior with the defendant, but not with other men, which tend to show consent. How about specific instances of prior misconduct by the accused? Defendant's other crimes offered for a non-character purpose. So other crimes, here's a general rule, other crimes or prior acts of misconduct by the defendant are not admissible during the state's case in chief 
if the only purpose is to prove criminal disposition. In other words, if it's offered to show that because of the defendant's bad character, he likely committed the crime currently charged. However, as we know, there are exceptions. Prior crimes or prior acts of misconduct may be admitted at the initiation of the prosecutor when the misconduct is relevant to prove a material fact other than character or disposition. In other words, to prove some relevant issues separate and apart from bad character. Therefore, although prior accused misconduct is not admissible to show criminal disposition, it would be permissible if relevant to show motive, opportunity, intent, preparation, plan, knowledge, identity, or absence of mistake or accident. It's known by the acronym MIMIC, uh, which was drilled into our heads in law school, and which is a very uh, useful mnemonic device um, for recalling uh, those times when it's admissible. Um, I also refer to it as 404B, um, so whichever helps trigger these in your mind. Uh, here's a few tips for approaching mimic evidence. This type of evidence is generally offered in a criminal case by the prosecutor and not by the defense. However, that doesn't mean that the defendant can't introduce evidence uh, relying upon mimic. Second, don't forget to weigh the probative value of introducing this evidence against its prejudicial effect. That balancing test is huge, absolutely huge in this area. Third, mimic evidence is never admissible to prove criminal disposition or propensity to commit a crime. And this is really disturbing because, you know, we indulge in this fiction as attorneys that... A jury can, in their mind, set aside certain purposes for which the evidence is being offered and use it for other purposes. I, I'll tell you, I mean, I'm just using myself as an example, but I myself find it very difficult to delineate these purposes. Um, you know, as I'm sure many lawyers do themselves. I mean, we've been drilled and drilled and drilled on this in law school. So, you know, intuitively it makes sense. But practically speaking, for a lay person, a juror, it's very difficult, if not impossible, to separate one purpose from another. And so that's why this is such dangerous evidence, and that's why you really want to argue as a defense attorney, if it's being introduced by the prosecutor, that the probative value of introducing this evidence is um, outweighed by its prejudicial effect. You never want to overlook this balancing test. Um, and in an effort to buttress your argument in, this, uh, in the balancing test, you want to find cases that um, have facts similar to the ones in your case and um, where judges have excluded the evidence based on this balancing test and argue that the facts of your case are analogous to those in the cases that you're citing. Because it's really not enough to argue 
the probative value is significantly outweighed by its prejudicial effect. I mean, I've seen that argument raised time and time again, and it, it happens so frequently in these criminal cases where um, the victim, where it's a homicide case and there are very violent, disturbing, and graphic photographs of the decedent, uh, perhaps um, after being uh, shot or perhaps after being maimed or perhaps after being beaten to death. And you look at those pictures and you grimace or you wince and you know that those pictures are going to be viewed the very same way by the jury. And no matter how ensconced in the case you are, you got to step back and say to yourself, these pictures are no good and they could mean the difference between a guilty or a not guilty verdict in my case. And you really want to find examples from other cases that the judge has thrown out the evidence, excluded it altogether on these grounds, and argue that your case is on all fours with those. So rather than just, you know, um, say the trigger phrase that this evidence is significantly outweighed by its prejudicial effect, you really want to um, brief the issue and you want to argue strenuously um, to the judge that it should not be included. Uh, for the reasons that it shot, will shock the conscience and for uh, how um, influential it will, um, ha uh, how, uh, how outright, how outright devastating it will be to uh, the defense getting a fair trial. Uh, you don't want to fall into the trap necessarily that it's bad because not, because the judge is going to say to you, well, you know, the facts of this case are bad and there's going to be bad evidence that, you know, um, that might shock the conscience of the jury because of the nature of the charge. But you want to narrow your argument down to how it is going to taint the jury and how it is going to be impossible for that same jury to view the evidence um, objectively. Uh, during deliberations after they view these photographs which are so shocking and so disturbing and how they will likely cause trauma to the jurors uh, for the rest of their life. So you throw everything, uh, everything except the kitchen sink out there when you have issues like this. So how does mimic evidence arise? Well, it's a criminal case the defendant hasn't opened up the door. Um, the defendant may be charged in the indictment with one crime, but now the prosecutor wants to introduce evidence of defendant's other prior crimes or prior acts of misconduct. You must decide the purpose for which the other evidence is being offered. If it's being offered to show disposition, it's improper. Um, it's a non-starter. But if it's relevant to show some other issue in the case, then it is fair game. It's admissible. Hypo. Tony. We're back into Tony Soprano land. Tony is a vice president of HSBC Bank. First, he gambles illegally and loses 500000 In order to pay his debt, he second embezzles from his employer, HSBC. 
Third, he falsifies the books to cover up the embezzlement. Fourth, he discovers that auditors are coming to check the books on Monday. What does he do? He steals the key to get into the bank on Sunday night. And fifth, he sets the bank on fire in order to destroy the books. So Tony has been up to no good. Let us just summarize what he's done. He gambles illegally and loses 500K. Second, he embezzles from his employer, HSBC. Third, he falsifies the books to cover up the embezzlement. Fourth, he steals the key to get into the bank on Sunday night. Fifth, he sets the bank on fire in order to destroy the books. Assume Tony is charged only with the crime of arson for setting the bank on fire. Assume also that Tony offers no good character evidence and that he does not testify. He's listened to his attorney, most likely. <laughs> May the prosecutor, as part of its case in chief, introduce the illegal gambling, the embezzlement, the falsification of books, and the theft of the key? Once again, can the prosecutor, in its case in chief, because the defendant has not opened up the door, May the prosecutor introduce the evidence of illegal gambling, embezzlement, falsification of books, and the theft of the key. If you say yes, what purpose? So these are all relevant, separate and apart from character or disposition. Let's take the first one. First, the fact that Tony owed a substantial debt of 500,000 for illegally gambling demonstrates that he was under great financial pressure. Maybe he was even desperate to pay it off before something tragic happened. Thus, he had a motive to steal from his employer, HSBC Bank. Second, Tony's falsification of the books is evidence of a common plan or scheme to cover up the money that he embezzled from HSBC. He is a cunning devil. In doing so, Tony exploited his position as, as vice president of HSBC Bank for personal gain. And the theft of the key shows opportunity. So what we've done here is we've thought like the prosecutor and we've looked at this evidence, salivated over it, recognized how powerful it is to get this evidence introduced. We, at the same time, we know that it can't be used to infer character of the defendant. So we have now gone into mimic territory to find other purposes for which this evidence could be introduced without transcending or crossing the very fine line of character evidence being inadmissible. Once again, we have looked at this in a, in a very linear, uh, well, we've looked at it in a creative way. I wouldn't say linear because we've really had to think outside the box here. And first, we've identified that by owing a substantial debt of 500000 for illegally gambling demonstrates demonstrates at the very least that Tony was under great financial pressure. Anybody who owed, uh, owes a debt 
um, you know, even for a fraction of $500,000 could very well be said to be under great financial pressure. I mean, just think about it in your everyday life when you owe a credit card bill, even when you know you're going to pay it on time, you know, until you schedule the payment, you do feel a little bit of pressure every time your mind um, dwells or cogitates upon that bill. uh, For me personally, until I schedule the payment, I'm kind of thinking about it offhand, not all the time, not so preoccupied about it, but it does weigh heavily on my mind. And so you could extrapolate from that that, my God, $500,000 is a big chunk of change. So he could very well have been desperate to pay that money off. Second, he had a motive to steal from his employer, HSBC, to repay that massive gambling debt. Next, his falsification of the books was evidence of a common plan or scheme to cover up the money that he embezzled from HSBC. In doing so, Tony exploited his position as vice president of the bank for personal gain, and the theft of the key shows opportunity. So as we go through this here, this type of thinking actually is very useful to a prosecutor because now not only has he found... um, the ways in which the the other purposes in which he intends to introduce this evidence, but he's also provided himself a roadmap for how to try the case and has provided uh, fodder for the theory and the motives that he's being that he's used that he's u- relying upon to try his case. Examples of issues on which prior misconduct of the accused may be relevant, independent of character or disposition. Other crimes of past misconduct may be shown to prove what uh, evidence professors uh, collectively refer to by the acronym MIMIC. So I'm just going to very briefly go through these um, the MIMIC um, acronym. Motive. Here's a quick hypo for motive. The defendant is charged with murdering a detective. The prosecutor offers evidence that the defendant killed his wife three years ago. Oh my God, that is going to be, uh, that is going to violate the sacred rule of character evidence, um, one would think. But is it admissible? Once again, not admissible because a prosecutor wants the jury to infer that if defendant killed before, then he'd kill again. Once again, the hypo uh, alleges the defendant or charges the defendant with murdering a detective, and the prosecutor now wants to offer evidence that the defendant killed his wife three years ago. Once a killer, always a killer. That evidence um, viewed through the lens of character evidence is inadmissible. Compare. What if the detective, all right, once again, the detective was the victim in our hypothetical, but what if the detective, the victim of the murder charge, was killed because the detective was about to arrest defendant for the murder of his wife? Similarly, the prosecutor wants to offer evidence that defendant killed his wife three years ago. 
Does it make a difference? Does it make a difference that the prosecutor now wants to introduce evidence that that same detective that Tony killed was about to arrest him for the murder of his wife? The answer is yes. Why? Defendant had a motive to kill the detective to avoid being arrested for murdering his wife. In a burglary case, the prosecutor offers testimony that the defendant needed money to defend himself against three other recent charges of burglary. Is this admissible as motive evidence? That defendant needed money to defend himself against three other charges of burglary? No. To say the least, it is highly prejudicial. The jury will think that if this man committed three other burglaries, then he probably committed this one too. Such testimony by the prosecutor would be inadmissible. In a murder case, the defendant claims the victim was his friend and that he had no reason to kill the victim. In rebuttal, since motive is an issue, the prosecutor may introduce evidence that both the defendant and the victim took part in an earlier bank robbery and the victim hid all of the stolen money. Such evidence would be admissible to prove motive. All right, so this is interesting. The defendant, of course, put into play this fact that the victim was his friend and that he had no reason to kill him. But since this issue of motive is an issue, the prosecutor can turn around and introduce evidence that both the defendant and the victim took part in an earlier bank robbery and that the victim hid all of the stolen money. That goes clearly to um, a motive on the part of the defendant to kill the victim because he did not um, share with him the ill-gotten gain from the earlier bank robbery. Intent. Uh, a hint here when we're in the area of intent is uh, you have to prove absence of accident. Uh, and that's an unwritten rule, but it is important to remember. The defendant, who is charged with receiving stolen goods, claims that he was unaware that the goods were stolen. The prosecutor offers evidence that the defendant had received stolen goods on five prior occasions from the same thief involved in the case. Is that admissible? Yes. Identity. The murdered victim is found with a .45 caliber pistol, the murder weapon, next to the body. The pistol was owned by Mayer, but was stolen in a burglary of Mayer's mansion three years ago. Can the prosecutor show that the defendant, who is charged with murdering the victim, burglarized Mayer's house three years ago and stole the gun. Yes. Okay, once again, we have a situation where we're dealing with an exception to the general rule for character evidence. This victim was found with, with a 45 caliber pistol right next to his body. And it can be established that this pistol, that the owner of the pistol was the mayor of the town. 
and that the mayor's house had been burglarized three years ago. And during that burglary, the pistol was stolen. The prosecutor can show that the defendant burglarized the mayor's house three years ago and stole the gun. Um, That, whoa, is a huge, huge explosion for the defense uh, because that connects the defendant to the gun and in turn um, connects the defendant, perhaps tenuously, to the murder victim. Because what we have to remember here is that the burglary of the mansion where the mayor lived occurred three years ago. So even if this evidence is introduced to establish a connection between the defendant and the pistol, the reality of it is is that three years have gone by, and as a defense attorney, I'd argue that that pistol could well have changed hands 16 different times in that period. So it can't be assumed or inferred that if the defendant was the one who at one point was in possession of the pistol, that he had to have been the one who murdered the victim. But as you can see here, you're in a position where you're, where you have to defend. And uh, it's not a position of strength, uh, to say the least, when you're at trial. Modus operandi, another way to prove identity. The defendant must be charged with a crime that is distinctive and unusual. It must be defendant's trademark. The defendant um, in this scenario is charged with stabbing the victim in the groin. Two years ago, the defendant stabbed another victim in the groin. The prior crime would be evidence of MO. Don't forget, however, to show the relevance. Another hypo. Defendant is charged with forging a doctor's name to a prescription in order to illegally obtain drugs from a pharmacy. The defendant denies he did it. Can the prosecutor show that the defendant forged a prescription three years ago to illegally obtain drugs? No, because it's being used to show that if the defendant forged a doctor's name to a prescription in order to obtain illegal drugs before, then he did it this time. Compare. What if the fictitious doctor's name that was used by the defendant in obtaining these uh, on the fake script in order to obtain the drugs on both occasions was a very distinctive and unusual name. One such as Aloysius Kevorkian Peabody. What if that name of Aloysius Kevorkian Peabody is used both times? The time several years ago when the defendant forged the doctor's name to a script in order to obtain the drugs and this time, this uh, most recent time. Yes, it would be admissible because the initials AKP are defendant's distinctive and unusual trademark. Common plan or scheme. Here's our next typo. The defendant is charged with a bank robbery. Can the prosecutor show that the defendant stole a truck the day before the bank robbery? No. What if the truck was used in the bank robbery as the getaway car? 
Yes. How the defendant came to be in possession of a car that was not registered to him and that he did not have the owner's permission to use, but that he was nonetheless operating on the day of the crime shows a common plan. Now, as I prefaced above when I first spoke about Mimic, it's subject to 403, the balancing, Evidence relevant to show motive, intent, identity, and common scheme may be excluded if the judge believes that the probative value is substantially outweighed by the danger of unfair prejudice. So as a defense attorney, that's um, something that, of course, you'd be arguing uh, for reasons that I talked about earlier. Hypo involving mimic. Plaintiff is charged with a bank robbery. The prosecutor offers to show motive by evidence that defendant was recently released from prison for sexual abuse of a child and needed money to support his heroin addiction. Is that admissible? Of course not. The probative value of introducing that shocking um, and unsettling evidence that defendant was recently released from prison for sexually abusing a child and needed to support a drug addiction as I said, it's inflammatory and is substantially outweighed by the danger of unfair prejudice to the defendant. Interesting to note, uh, mimic applies to civil as well as criminal cases. A special rule for cases involving sexual assault and child molestation. Prior similar acts are allowed to show propensity. In civil or criminal cases, Charging a defendant with sexual assault or child molestation, the defendant's prior acts of sexual assault or child molestation may be shown by the prosecutor or the plaintiff. This is disposition evidence. He did it before, therefore, you're entitled to assume that he did it again. There doesn't even have to be a charge for the prior act of sexual assault to be admissible. It's very damaging to the defense. Um, However, a lot of this, um, you know, has been enshrined in legislation that uh, was introduced by uh, fierce advocates um, for uh, these, this cause, um, you know, and uh, as defense attorneys, uh, we have to work within the confines of these rules and still um, argue as strenuously as possible um, that the evidence is inadmissible. Uh, perhaps relying on the uh, weighing test uh, of 403. That is going to end the second part of Evidence 101. If you have any questions, please feel free to contact me anytime. Uh, You can do so at my email address, which is included in the slides that you get with the presentation. Um, And I'm more than willing to uh, assist in any any questions or um, any feedback that you have. Thank you.